Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 51 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Barney and Angelo. Now, Angelo, first things first, we're switching things up a bit this week. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what to expect here because uh, you kind of like flipped the script on me, and now I'm stuck with this, and we'll see where it goes. So in a very on-the-nose matter, and by the way, happy episode 51 and happy new year, Angelo, we go deep on one of our most beloved hotspots, the secretive Groom Lake facility, better known by its Area 51 moniker. Angelo, I want you now to reach under your seat and uh, pull out the book that I talked to you about and uh, what is happening? Open it up. All right. Well, I get it. I'll, let's see where this goes. Okay, thanks. Okay, yeah, I have... so I, I've, I've written your lines for you, and Area 51 doesn't know that it's happening yet. I've invited it over, uh, and we'll talk to it in a bit. But first, I want you to sort of like familiarize yourself with it, right? I, I have a feeling I'm going to learn something tonight from, from this whole, um, I was going to say ordeal, but that's the wrong choice of words. From this whole endeavor, I guess, is the right word? Yeah, I'd say never too. So what I want you to do is, as, as I kind of like, once Area 51 shows up, I want you to stick to the script, okay? I'll do my best. All right, now let's lift up the curtain and get into some history about one of America's most famous classified areas. We're going to be bringing in Area 51 and surprising it, so please stay as quiet as possible as we allow it to find a seat. Double density. Hey, welcome. Uh, yeah. Hey, Area 51. Yeah, have a seat, friend. I understand that you're here as part of a panel on important buildings in U.S. history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, no, 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 no. Well, so the thing is... Uh, we have to come clean. This was just a ruse to get you here, and we apologize, but we figured perhaps you wouldn't want to come if we didn't, you know, bend the truth a bit. So brace yourself, friend, for Area 51. This is your life. Area 51, do you, do you recognize that sound? So it turns out that the area you're located in was first inhabited in the mid-19th century. The Groom, with an E, Lead Mine Limited Company, financed mine exploration in the 1870s, and many tried their luck at striking it big in the area. Lead and silver were the metals of the area to be extracted. This practice continued onward into the 20th century as a host of folks continued to migrate to the area to find suitable employment. World War II brought with it a myriad number of challenges, both domestic and abroad. In order to rise up to meet these challenges, and to allow for proper militaristic expansion, the U.S. Air Force built a series of takeoff landing strips in Nevada, including two 5,000-foot runways built at Groom Lake in 1942. Post-war, these runways were abandoned, but not for too long. Do you remember that sound, Area 51? That is the sound of progress. By the middle of the 1950s, 1955 to be exact, the CIA had established a facility at Groom Lake by those runways to work on experimental aircraft. What you just heard is a test flight for what would eventually become the U-2 spy plane. CIA Director Richard Bissell and his team, working on what were eventually dubbed Skunk Words, a codename for secretive CIA projects, realized that, given the super-secretive nature of the project, it could not happen at any conventional larger base, and sought you out specifically due to your somewhat hard-to-reach location. To attract workers, you were originally given the name Paradise Ranch, but the name soon gave way to Area 51. As described extensively in Andy Jacobson's Area 51 book, 
This would be one of the first projects undertaken under your roof, away from the scrutiny that projects of your caliber would bring on more visible grounds. By the way, I still haven't finished that book, sorry to say. It's only been a year, though, but Area 51, it's okay. He's going to finish the book. Officially Area 51, you were listed as little more than a tiny base under the codename The Watertown Project. According to the Atomic Energy Commission, in a brief handed to the press in 1957, you were here to study weather. But as we'll soon discover, I think you'll agree, perhaps slyly, that that wasn't all you were doing. Nuclear testing was still a prevalent government preoccupation during the 1950s, and you actually had a lot to deal with the fallout of that. Working conditions for those within you was often difficult and not without issues. Thankfully, with the Nuclear Arms Treaty drafted and signed, your grounds were safe from a lot of that. One theory as to why you were given your name, Area 51, was purportedly as part of an extension of a scheme the Nevada testing site devised in order to map ranges for testing purposes. They drew up a grid from 1 to 30, and since you were located next to grid spot 15, someone inverted your number to 51. There are many variations on the cartographically inclined reason why you were given your moniker. Being allowed into your site was quite difficult, Area 51. To gain access, one needed top-secret security clearance as well as an invitation from the highest levels of the military or intelligence community. Government agencies have, officially, very little on file about you. Government mapmakers have purposefully obfuscated your location as well as the methods by which to reach your location. Folks were curious about what you were up to and would climb nearby ridges to spy on you and see what you were doing. Two of those, Whiteside's Peak and Freedom Ridge, were popular amongst those who wanted to get a good look at you. In 1995, they were acquired by Area 51 overseers and closed off to the public. In their place, signs with stern warnings about fines and imprisonment for trespassing stood. Men who aren't dressed in normal army attire patrol your borders and stop anyone who tries to gain entry into you. They wear camel and patrol with what some have described are rifles capable of emitting an electromagnetic pulse or EMP. This can ruin any tech you have with you. Apparently, the government has also outfitted you with a myriad number of cameras and sensors to pick up any trespassers. Those who work inside of you have to take a plane from Las Vegas airport aboard Janet Airlines, which we've previously discussed on this program, and sign multiple pieces of paper upon being hired that make them understand the gravity of the work that goes on within you. The U-2 spy plane. The A-12 ox cart, which eventually turned into the SR-71 Blackbird. The Havblue, which became the F-17A stealth fighter. These are a few of the known projects you were worked on. However, for decades, there were whispers of much more. You see, most of the information we've talked about just now only was made public within the last decade. Before that, though, rumors floated around about you. And you didn't mind that, did you, Area 51? You were fine to let the public wag their tongues about what was going on inside of you. You didn't have to disclose anything, so you allowed the public to dream. The occasional slip-up would occur, however. For example, the Black Star Project was brought to light by Aviation Week and Space Technology Magazine. The Black Star craft itself was purportedly a small orbital plane that took flight from a number of bases in the 1990s, including yours. But that's not the only sorts of secret projects people were claiming were within you. All right, Angela, it's your turn. You, you have to read the next part here. Right. All right. Are you sure? Yes, yes. I know how much you hate this, but you have to. All right. Here we go. Discovery's four computers now have primary control of critical vehicle functions. Discovery Houston. 20- Bill Casing's 1976 book, We Never Went to the Moon, America's $30 billion swindle. 
brought about another layer of conspiracy theory-sized complexity to what activities occur within you. Casing's book claims that the U.S. government faked the moon landing and the six Apollo moon landing missions, and the whole thing was shot on your grounds, making the astronauts complicit in the deceit. We're going to link to a list of assertions Casing makes as to why the U.S. government couldn't have put men on the moon, including inadequate technical knowledge, optical issues with officially released photos and footage, the lack of apparent stars and photographs, and more. Casing is regarded as the pioneer of the moon landing hoax, which we also talked about in a prior episode while discussing the documentary Room 231 about Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's novel The Shining. But that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to claims about you, isn't it? Let's invite our next guest to talk about you. Between December of 88 and April of 89, I worked as a senior staff physicist in what has to be the most secret project in history. My place of work was a facility at an area known as S-4 on the Nellis Air Force Range in central Nevada. Area S-4 is located approximately 15 miles south of the infamous Area 51 installation at Groom Lake. In a way, everything came to a head for you in 1989 Area 51. Try to remember that voice. You must recognize it. In May 1989, a 30-year-old man named Bob Lazar made some really, really wild claims about you. He told the world that he worked on some top-secret projects on the S-4 subsidiary site, which he claims was just near where you call home. He claimed that his job was to reverse-engineer technology obtained from aliens. In a series of interviews with journalist George Knapp, he revealed what he claimed to know about you in painstaking detail. Finally, the dam of purported secrecy broke. Furthering the threat of Lazar's revelation, an alternate narrative of what goes on within you is revealed. The remains of the July 1947 crash of alien spacecraft in Roswell, New Mexico, were apparently brought to you after being collected by the Army. Never mind the hypothesis that the wreckage was a weather balloon, a part of Project Mogul. No, that... that wouldn't be it. That's too facile of an explanation, detractors of the official story claimed. The downcraft was a saucer, and depending on which story you choose to believe, the government also scooped up its alien passengers. Some stories state that all were dead... Others state that it was a mixture of dead and living beings, and some even state that everyone survived the wreck. I use the term everyone here vaguely, as it's actually currently impossible to count the number of beings with any confidence due to the utter lack of existing evidence. You, Area 51, began to house extraterrestrial beings and craft within the confines of your walls, the story goes. Lazar's tale also includes how you're home to several hundred pounds of Element 115, which extraterrestrial beings gave to government officials. It's this element that is used as both fuel and a stable gravity source that propels these saucers into space and beyond. A lot of the modern technology we now enjoy decades later, Lazar also claims, is the fruit of the recovered technology and the reverse engineering that goes on within the walls of your facilities. Pushing this further, others have claimed that Area 51 is home to a major hub of the New World Order and is a prep site for when the quote-unquote big takeover is finally going to occur and usher in a new era of world domination. Others, meanwhile, tie in the MJ-12 group to Area 51 and its extracurricular, pun intended, activities, though any evidence of that, much like most of the information related to the saucer folks, is pure speculation. We'd be remiss not to mention the notion of Hangar 18 at the same time, which we've discussed on the show before. A motion picture bears its name. A classic Megadeth song is named after the place. Area 51, you're home to this infamous hangar where conspiracy theorists believe a live alien specimen lives. Though highly doubtful, it seems that people believe that Hangar 18 may exist within you. Lazar and other industrious folks began to give tours that claimed it would divulge the true nature of your activities, Area 51. They would load a bus up and bring people to the desert to witness many lights and sounds that commercial airspace cannot explain. 
They labeled these crafts as otherworldly and allowed folks to stick around in the early morning hours and detail a lot of what happened and what they believed occurred on site. The groundswell for more information grew and grew. Eyeballs were attracted towards your desert location in Area 51. The public's interest was officially piqued, and they wanted to know more and began flocking to the edges of your property to take information in. They wanted to be a part of something. The people around you adored you so much, Area 51, that they decided to commemorate a highway in your name. The Nevada Commission of Tourism rechristened Nevada State Route 375 to the Extraterrestrial Highway in 1996. By that time, you had become a national treasure and a tremendous wave of attention had been shown your way. The Tourism Commission figured that this sort of notoriety was perfect to capitalize upon and bring in extra out-of-state dollars. And guess what? They were right. By this time, your name regularly appeared in the news. The year before the highway rededication, Bill Clinton signed an executive order exempting you from having to reveal too much, ensuring that secrecy for any projects attached to you would continue. Online, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, Art. Yes. Hi. Um, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, time. Um, well, look, let's begin yeah. by finding out whether you're using this line properly or not. Uh, Area 51. Yeah, um, that's right. Were you an employee or are you now? Uh, I... Now, we're not sure if you're up to date with current affairs, Area 51, but in the late 1990s, conspiracy theory culture was everywhere. The X-Files lit a fire under people. Comedian Richard Belzer wrote a best-selling book all about his interests in the subject. Several Fox specials about aliens hosted by Star Trek actor Jonathan Frakes aired to great acclaim. Now, Area 51, radio was not immune to this wave of conspiracy-centric pop culture curiosity. Art Bell's syndicated overnight program, Coast to Coast AM, ran five nights a week, with Bell hosting the Dreamland show on a sixth night, and almost nothing was off-limits to the hosts, his guests, and callers. On September 11th, 1997, after an hour spent talking to Daniel Brinkley about his near-death experience, Bell opened up the lines for Area 51 workers to call in and spill the beans. He was curious, just like the rest of us, about what secrets are hidden inside of you, and promised amnesty as well as an audience of millions to those who would divulge even the tiniest morsels of information. During the second hour of this, a frantic caller detailed what he claimed to be the true nature of your existence, and right in the middle of the call, an abrupt silence. After several moments, a rerun of the show Bell had with Mark Furman, yes, the Furman from the O.J. Simpson trial, played until Bell came back onto the air. It turned out that the satellite broadcasting Bell's show from his prompt Nevada location out into the world somehow lost Earthlock and interrupted the broadcast. The rest of the evening was spent deconstructing on-air what had occurred, as well as debating the validity of the caller. One thing was clear, however. This was must-listen-to radio. The phone call is perhaps one of the most discussed incidents in the 1990s with regards to you, Area 51, and your true nature. Whether or not it's truly a snapshot of what happens on your grounds, it still led to people talking about you for years to come. During Bell's mid-2010s return to digital airways with his Midnight in the Desert program, Bell still fielded calls regularly about the incident. By the turn of the millennium, you are now a permanent fixture of pop culture. In some ways, Area 51 has been, and continues to be, used as a shorthand, a sort of code to denote secrecy, government deceit, and extraterrestrial involvement in governmental affairs. Films like Independence Day poked fun at your true existence. You entered the lexicon of the every person when it came to talking about capital S secrets. Twenty thirteen was an interesting year for you, Area fifty one. 
Do you remember it well? It was the year a name was legitimized in the eyes of the public. Jeffrey T. Reichelson, a researcher at George Washington University's National Security Archive, obtained documents about the development and use of the U-2 and the Oxcart surveillance aircraft in the 1950s and 60s. The documents made repeated references to Area 51 and detailed how it was selected as a testing area by the CAA, the U.S. Air Force, and defense contractor Lockheed because of its remote location. And with that, information regarding your name was spoken through legitimate channels. Your purpose, at least your official one, was revealed. And finally, in 2014, our paths finally intersected Area 51. I was on vacation in Las Vegas for a week in late December, and we decided to rent a car and drive out to see you. We started our trek out on December 26, 2014. I forgot how cold the desert can get in December, even with the sun out bright. We took the highway out of Las Vegas to 375 and passed the extraterrestrial highway sign on the way to go visit you. We found the black mailbox now painted white after driving through miles and miles of beaten desert earth and drove the remaining miles up a dirt road, encountering your entrance, and promptly turned back. The only thing we encountered on the road the entire last stretch before turning off was a UPS truck on a daily route. The worst part? The worst part of Area 51 is that I had all sorts of spare cash ready to spend at the little alien, spelt A-L-E, apostrophe I-N-N, but it was closed for repairs that week. Nothing on your website, nothing on social media. We drove all the way out there and I couldn't even buy a stupid Area 51 trinket. You wound me, Area 51. The lasting legacy you've left on my heart is that of sadness. I don't know if I'll ever go out again, and I couldn't even stop and get a stupid alien keychain. Angelo, I'm heartbroken. You know, you couldn't even get one of those t-shirts that said I went to Area 51 and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. It was the most, one of the most infuriating things in my life. I, uh, we, we spent all this money and time to go out there, only to end up uh, empty and sad. Uh, I, I do have a picture of the extraterrestrial highway that I've been trying to find through my archives, um, but I think you know the pain of having to search through a ton of pictures. It's probably gone, Brian. They probably got into your computer and deleted it. Oh, most likely. Most likely. But somehow, somewhere, Area 51, I shall still love you. Whether you simply host experimental aircraft of terrestrial origins, or you're truly a gateway towards greater, stranger, and more sinister things, well, that doesn't matter. You continue to mystify me. Angela, I'll see you in the tech section. Yeah, see you there. Hello, all you curious creatures out there. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are the hosts of Into the Portal. If you like myths, legends, history with a paranormal twist, join us every week as we explore lesser-known mysteries of our world and beyond. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and all other major podcast platforms, and at intotheportal.com, your gateway to the bizarre. The only question is, do you dare appear into the portal? Welcome back to Double Density, and as always, but not always, we're switching gear from paranormal to the tech. That sounds really weird. I know, I know. Uh, in preparing for this episode, though, you um, you wrote some of the music, actually, that we hear um, in the paranormal section, and you did that uh, thanks to a, a new trinket that you bought yourself. I've always kind of wanted um, a USB MIDI controller. I think I've mentioned that on the show before. Maybe, maybe not. I had one 
that I was using, uh, which actually was a rock band controller, the piano controller, but it only was 25 keys. And um, my other keyboard, which is a 88 key weighted keyboard from Alesis that I've had since the late 90s, weighs like 70 pounds and has like a permanent place in my basement and would be a, a huge hassle to be bringing upstairs to my iMac. Either way, bringing one upstairs or, or one downstairs would be annoying and would kind of block my my hallway. So I figured, let me go get a nice little USB keyboard. And I ended up getting an M-Audio Keystation 61. Um, M-Audio is a good brand. And I got it based basically on the size because it's 61 keys, which is great for me. They're semi-weighted, so it's not like a real piano, but still feels good, fits on my desk, works well. And um, I did the little short piece of music that was in the intro to the uh, This Is Your Life segment that we just did. In one take, by the way. Oh. No, I mean, we did that whole oh, segment we did, in yeah, one take. Seamlessly. Yeah. Expert podcasting here. Yeah. No, no, it took me like... Uh, the song, I, I kind of came up with it relatively quickly. It was more time of like figuring out uh, how my how that new controller works with Logic and stuff. But it was, it was okay. It, wasn't, it took me about an hour to get, get it done. I think it came out okay. I think it did come out really well, and I hope it's the first of like many new compositions for the show that we'll hear. I hope so. I, I'm I'm kind of really enjoying doing that stuff because it's it's the type of music I never used to write. It was always I was always like into like rock and stuff like that, which is still good. I, <laughs> not that I'm like a, a snob and only like film scores now, uh, but uh, but you're well on your way to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm only going to be listening to uh, film scores from now on. That's fine with me. Housekeeping item. Uh, recently, we talked about uh, the Uber self-driving car uh, killing someone in the states, and Toby over from Secret Transmission was uh, tweeting with us about that recently. And he was saying uh, that he had a thought: in three years, this only had one death compared to a human driver, and that those test cars only take up approximately, if not less than one percent, of the road um, versus actual drivers. Right. So, if the percentage was higher, I bet he was saying that they'd see a lot more deaths. And I do agree with him actually. That percentage-wise, uh, yeah, we've only had one death, and I do believe it was in Arizona. But uh, there's also not that many self-driving cars in the world right now. So as we ramp up the number of those, I do believe that the number of incidents and unfortunate uh, casualties will rise too. It's definitely less than 1%. I would say it's like a fraction of a percent at this point, since there's so few uh, self-driving cars. I do appreciate the uh, gif of Hal that he gave us in the tweet, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, but yeah, he's, he's definitely not wrong. Overall, I'm certain that self-driving cars will be much safer than actual human beings because um, they're not dumb like us most of the time. Although no, we're not all dumb. I mean, we know how to drive, I guess, but still, we are fallible and computers are perfect. Right, Brian? They are nothing if not amazing. Um, <laughs> the problem I have, though, is that sort of like in-between period of like now and when everyone has access to an autonomous vehicle, right? So I think the growing pains, including when they're um, in between the haves and the haves-nots, um, does create a lot of problematic sort of um, incidents and the possibilities of uh, accidents uh, as well as like fatalities uh, will still be um, in the air. For sure. Uh, I don't see everyone having an autom autonomous vehicle for like on a conservative guess 50 years if not even more than that yeah i'd say that doesn't sound wrong yeah actually 50 years is probably optimistic yeah i definitely do believe that between now and then though i, I we will see a, a number of incidents unfortunately as like uh as we continue to sort of like uh allow cars to become more autonomous 
let's switch gears from something that is very, very uh, comfortable. Some might say like even at home with you, um, the idea of Apple apologists or uh, sorry, people uh, giving out apologies to Apple. Well, that's not really what I linked to in the show notes. It's it's actually a fun article by Jonathan Kim on uh, Medium. And he's basically talking about the three stages of Apple criticism. And it's something I noticed when the AirPods were announced. And I, I think we talked about it on the show. Actually, did the show even exist? No, the show didn't exist. So we definitely didn't talk about it on the show. Um, but we... I did notice it is that how people were like quick to criticize the AirPods saying they looked dumb, which was true, and that they would fall out of your ears, which uh, once people started trying them uh, was not true in most cases, not uh, all. I do have to say I they don't fit my ears at all. So yeah, they keep slipping out and I keep looking like an idiot in public whenever I do try to give them a, a try because I had a pair come with my iPhone SE and it just, it didn't work out unfortunately. Okay, but those aren't AirPods. Those are EarPods. That's different and... They, the same shape, though. They are the same shape. However, they do fall out less than earpods because there's no wire to attach. Um, but again, in terms but of... You're, the, you're talking about construction, not shape, though. Yeah, no. So look, what happens is if you... I've, I've heard anecdotal things that even people who the regular earpods would fall out of their ears, the AirPods don't. But... If is this the, part of your Apple Enthusiasts weekly meeting that I'm not invited to? Yes, exactly. No, I, I've seen it talked about. But again, if the earpods don't fit your ear at all, and they like just fly out of there, then yeah, the AirPods are totally not for you. But like this article was talking about um, Vlad Savoff, which I think we mentioned this article, right? Because he was saying how he's an audiophile and he gave the AirPods another chance and he actually liked them quite a bit. Yeah, I, I do remember that article. And for what they are, they're actually, people thought they were expensive and all this. They're actually not that expensive when you look at the other completely wireless uh, earbuds out there. They're actually competitively priced and they sound really good. If you give them a chance, they actually sound really good. Obviously, they're not going to sound like open back over the year headphones uh, that cost five or six hundred dollars or in the case of uh, Vlad uh, Savoff, he says he uses like $3,000 headphones usually. Um, they're not going to sound that good. We've said this before, but the difference between uh, a two or $300 set of headphones to what you're going to get with a $3,000 set of headphones is, is kind of like diminishing returns there at a certain point. It's very minuscule, yeah. Yeah, and AirPods are slightly below that. But again, they sound really good. And the thing is, is it's less about the sound and more about the convenience. Anyway, this all has to do with the fact that people criticized these things before they even got a chance, and then people started using them, and they all really started enjoying them. And this guy talks about the three stages. He talks about anger, um, blaming the victims, and acceptance. The article kind of nails what happens with Apple criticism. The thing is, Apple getting criticized sometimes is actually a good thing, which is something we've started to see now on the pro end of the spectrum. Are you talking of a uh, sort of computer that may be coming out uh, next year uh, that has uh, been designed or is being designed at the Cupertino campus? Exactly. Uh, last year, um, in April, Apple had a sit-down with a few um, popular Apple tech journalists. This year, they brought one of those journalists back. Uh, in this case, it's uh, Matt Panzerino from TechCrunch. And they told them that they're still working on this Mac Pro 
And it's definitely not coming out in 2018. Because last year they said not coming out this year, meaning 2017. But nowhere did they say it's not it's coming out in 2018. So now they're confirming it's a 2019 date. And they actually have a whole team of professionals that have been hired by Apple. So these are people working professionals in um, filmmaking and music and 3D rendering, all these things that require enormous computational power. That Angela, before I forget, though, do you feel like anyone from To The Stars is there currently using their products? To, to analyze some, uh, some videos from the Navy or whatever that yeah, you can't like see Yeah, or like building the anti-grav machine, perhaps. Oh, maybe. Uh, but I think uh, Tom DeLonge prefers to draw that on napkins. <laughs> and sliding them over yeah, uh, inside absolutely. of uh, hotel bars. Yes, exactly. But if he was part of that team, he'd be hired by Apple and they'd be working on this professional workflows thing where they're kind of seeing exactly what professionals need in their day-to-day. Now, Apple has sort of met some needs with the iMac Pro, which has been a huge success among professionals. Now, for me and you, it's way out of our price range and oh, totally, yeah. and totally not necessary for what we do. Like, the, What's the most intensive thing you do on your computer, Brian? Uh, this podcast exactly me too and actually no let's lie some light video editing but not i'm not really like using like an after effects or anything exactly like i'll do i'll do some stuff in final cut every once in a while but it's extraordinarily rare and very short and logic and GarageBand really don't take up too much of the cpu i'm never pegging my cpu and I, i i've mentioned this before i've considered buying more ram but whenever I look at my memory uh, usage, it's it's not even coming close to the 8 gigs I have now. So I'm kind of fine for now with that stuff. But a professional, they're going to be using like at least 32 gigs of RAM. They're going to want a super fast SSD with a lot of space on it. And they're going to want a lot of cores processing uh, their stuff. <laughs> That's yeah. a very technical term. And the thing too is that like I, I'm definitely like the target demographic for some of this. And I think for me next year it comes down to two things, which is like a price point, obviously, as well as like a capabilities um, list, I guess would be the best way of saying it, right? I'm just, I'm very interested in seeing a features list as well as how much this would set me back because I would love this. I don't necessarily uh, see myself buying a, a desktop at the moment, but I, I mean, another a MacBook or, a, you know, like a Mac Pro would be, would be great. The problem with the Mac Pro though, is if you think the iMac Pro is expensive, I'm going to almost guarantee you that the Mac Pro will be even more expensive. Even yeah, I think so too, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I do think that the way that they're sort of um, professionally QAing this, uh, you know, with industry professionals, uh, le- leads me to believe that it's going to cost a lot of money that I don't have. And the, the thing is, is that this is geared at people to where money is really no object. Like Hans Zimmer does not care that his iMac is going to cost him like 15 grand. It's not a big deal. It's also like a a write-off for him. It's a tax write-off in theory. Well, also, yes, exactly. Like these are all write-offs. They're they're business expenses. It's not a big deal. You and I... So do you want to start a shell corporation with me? Sure. What do you want to call it? Uh, Well, a name is secondary. I just want you to agree that we should probably start a shadow business in order to, uh, you know, uh, buy up tech as well as any sort of other kind of uh, fun little trinkets you may want to buy within the next year. You know, more keyboards, more MIDI controllers, you know, maybe a keytar. Well, it sounds like fun, and I guarantee I wouldn't be bored with that stuff. Well, there you go. I'm going to talk to my CPA father, and we'll figure something out there. What's up, UFOnauts? It's your UFO guy, Rob Christofferson. Have you ever been curious about the UFO phenomenon, but unsure of where to start? Have you ever wondered about just what crashed at Roswell? 
Have you ever wanted common sense advice about licking UFOs? The answers don't. Then check out the Our Strange Skies podcast, where we dive into America's rich UFO history and uncover what these sightings say about ourselves. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and most podcast apps, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In gray we trust. But speaking of being bored, what are teens doing now these days, Brian? They're being very, very bored by everything, including their phones. You sent me this Daily Beast article about how Generation Z is already bored by the internet. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the article because it's, it's true. And I see, I don't want to be one of those old poo-pooing adults that say, oh, of course they're bored. They have no... This is exactly, it, it's the cycle of things that I always like to talk about, right? How every generation has their own little bugaboos and how they think that certain things are ruining society and how kids are bored these days and they should just go outside and play. But we heard the same things when we were kids about video games and comic books and rock and roll and rap and whatever, right? I definitely do understand a lot of what these teens go through because I myself, um, and in the article, there's like this whole idea of like, even when you're on your phone, you're just bored and clicking around and it's a continual kind of clicking around too, right? Yeah. And, and I, and I get it. Uh, sometimes I like to bug my kids because they say, oh, we're bored. There's nothing to watch. Uh, and it drives me crazy because they have YouTube and they have Netflix and there's always something to watch. There's always something to do. But as a child, and in this case, as, as you become a teenager, you kind of don't feel like getting stuck doing the same thing over again. And there's some really good quotes. And um, one of my favorites was uh, from a young girl named Violet, 15-year-old in the UK. She said, sometimes I feel like I've seen everything there is to see on the internet. And it's quite true too, right? Like nothing is surprising anymore, I guess. Uh, exactly. And uh, another uh, quote from, uh, uh, actually, all the quotes I found were from, uh, there were, did they even interview any, any boys? I don't think so. I don't remember. I don't think so. I think every, every, uh, every person interviewed were, were young women. Um, Ariana said that it's important to note that the older generations realize that we are not just obsessed with our phones. It's so much more than that. Older people think that our world will end because we have all this access to social media and technology that our minds are going to stop evolving or something. I've heard that many times. It's not true at all. And she's right. We've heard this many times with everything. And it's not the way it works. And there, there's some actual science backing her, her quote. Adam Perkins, a researcher from uh, the Department of Psychological Medicine at King's College in London, he says that phone boredom might actually be a good thing. And it's, it's not going to really ruin children. It's, it's actually, apparently said... It, it potentially stops them from leading to something more destructive, like daydreaming, which is odd. I never realized uh, daydream, <laughs> daydreaming could be destructive, but he says that can lead to unhappiness. So, it's, yeah, it's an interesting take. And he says evolution takes a long time to catch up with technology. So it's not, it's not like it's going to change our children's or the evolution of the brain. You think, you think it's not, he thinks it's not that big of a deal. It's just that boredom is being redefined. I kind of want to take things in a different, uh, a bit of a different direction with that, though. And, and thinking about the loss of mystery of wonder, you know, because the the psychologist is saying that, like, oh, uh, daydreaming can be destructive, but the idea of daydreaming itself is is very pure, and you know, it's almost like inviting. Like, do you daydream as at all as an adult? I guess sometimes uh, nothing 
like extravagant. I, I daydream of like going on a vacation I'll really enjoy, or I daydream of getting myself a keyboard. But what's fun as an adult is I can just go to the store and buy the keyboard. Right. But as an adult, you also don't have as much time or brain space to do these kinds of things because you have a, a life that's very involved in a lot of decisions and processes that you need um, to go through during your day. Right. So uh, when you're a teenager, you kind of have the, like the world ahead of you. But a lot of uh, things are now like very verifiable right on your phone. So, you know, the things that used to sort of take up your time as a kid are now easily debunked. Right. So the idea that you can, um, you know, daydream a bit about things that you're not sure of uh, as a normal rite of passage is kind of taken away with with your phone. Um, and so I feel like that kind of dulls a lot of processes as a teenager, right? So you're kind of bored clicking around all the time because you're not inspired at all. You're not daydreaming enough. You're not thinking ahead. You're not sort of like expanding uh, your mind in different ways. Like your creativity is kind of lost because it's all very fact-based and verifiable. Yeah. And, there, and there's something I noticed actually as well, which uh, I think we've discussed it before. You kind of end up with like a decision paralysis of what should I do next? And it's not necessarily maybe that you're bored. It's just like your mind can't really figure out what it wants to do with everything it has in front of it. I noticed this the other day with my daughter where she uh, she got this really amazing uh, app called Epic, which is um, it's basically all a whole bunch of children's books. And because she's a child in a school, she has access to all these books. I think you can also get access if uh, your school doesn't have uh, a plan with them. I think you do have to pay. It's like it's almost like a Netflix for kids books. And she was trying to figure out what to look at and she was getting distracted. I said, here, let me find the topic. And I typed in Area 51 and I got her reading a book about Area 51. And uh, how does she feel about the place? She thinks it's kind of interesting. And I told her, oh, uh, my friend Brian's actually been there. And she thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, so you're very cool now. And it's very cold out there. Well, now in the eyes of my child, you're cool. Perfect. Uh, but I, I do think that like, when you reach this point of like being saturated with information, which is what being on a phone is, you know, like at its core, you kind of have that boredom and you kind of like, you're looking for that next thing. Right. And you just kind of go, okay, whatever, who cares? You, you kind of become blase about every uh, new nugget of information, every fact, right. You don't actually take the time to sort of take things in because you're either rushed or you want to read something else, or you think that you're going to about to find something better on um, an app that you're about to use. Well, now new theory going back to the top of the show with Area 51 and how alien technology has given us all our current technology, perhaps the goal of the aliens was to give us these phones and lull us into boredom. So you're talking about low-key enslavement here. Yeah, they make us bored, and then we just become complacent, and then they just invade, and we're like, eh, sure, whatever. <laughs> Get onto the alien ships and come be uh, our cattle. Yeah, exactly. You know what? It's not the most far-fetched thing I've heard all week. I think I would agree with you, Brian. Not that far-fetched at all. Uh, Philip Corso may have had something to it. Double density. The last item on the docket for this episode is talking about apps, APIs, etc., etc. Uh, so uh, Twitter and Facebook are kind of clamping down on who has access to their APIs um, in order to uh, consolidate and sort of like better protect the information out there, right? But Sometimes it leads to uh, third-party apps not working as well, and that is the case uh, for Twitter as well as a lot of um, its third-party apps like TweetDeck. And you uh, sent me a link to a Verge article this week all about um, how uh, places and apps like TweetBot and Twitterific are looking at sort of uh, a problematic future, as it were. Yeah, the, the API was actually supposed to get pretty much shut down, and it wouldn't allow third-party apps to automatically refresh and 
send you actual push notifications, which almost renders them useless in the way certain people use Twitter. Luckily, like it seems like within minutes of them putting up this site called uh, Apps of a Feather, um, Twitter just said, okay, well, we're actually inf- uh, indefinitely delaying this uh, change. The problem is, is they still haven't come up with a solution for these third-party apps. And I've always liked the third-party Twitter apps. The thing is, is if you would have asked me like three or four years ago, oh, you should just use the official app. I would have said, no, it's garbage. But it's actually gotten better. Apart from I like it a lot. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's much better. Apart from a few things that bother me in terms of how things are ordered and all that, and um well my big problem is that you never get group dms and then i have to kind of coax you into checking your app well that's the thing right so i was going to say that is that what's unfortunate is that third-party twitter apps don't have access to the api that allows them to see uh, group dms which is kind of uh, frustrating and because i had to go in and find these uh messages of, of a group dm i've realized that actually the first party twitter app's not that bad apart from a few things i think the worst being the ads that pop up i'm not used to seeing ads on twitter but i guess um they're part of it at this point you kind of they kind of need to make money obviously right if you head over to my personal twitter profile brian he's seen you click through the media i've begun sort of documenting some of the weirder ads i've gotten and i have like five like five or six more than i need to post within the next couple of weeks but yeah the i don't know how they target ads on twitter but it's it's very mysterious to me was it on twitter where last time i mentioned the apple watch to you in a text message and then you opened twitter and there was an apple watch ad yeah like moments later that's really weird yeah, it's kind of scary, and I know that everyone's listening in, so I don't really care anymore about that. I've, I'm kind of like Pomo, you know, about the way that I feel about um, my information being collected. Yeah, whatever. At this point, uh, I just don't have the Facebook app on your phone. Delete that stuff. You don't have yeah. to delete your account, <laughs> but the app on your phone, I would highly urge you to get rid of it. The thing is, is everybody I say this to looks at me as if I'm a crazy person. Well, you kind of are, firstly. And secondly, a couple of episodes ago, we had TJ from Pints and Puzzles on. We were talking about slightly altering your Facebook info in order to start uh, turning your profile into a profile of lies. And I encourage everyone to continue doing that. (laughs) That's a great idea. So, yeah, go ahead and hit us up over at Twitter, Dole underscore Density. If you want to talk to us about your weird Twitter ads, send us some pictures. You can also hit us up on Facebook, ironically enough, facebook.com slash Double Density Podcast. <laughs> Same ID for Instagram, so Double Density Podcast. You can also visit us at doubledensity.net. Click on the Shows tab. You can also uh, find out which uh, sites and apps we're on. So we're currently officially now on Spotify. Yeah, that was kind of neat. Finally on Spotify. Um, I've, I don't, I'm not a Spotify subscriber and, uh, I use Apple music and I don't see Apple putting podcasts in Apple music anytime soon because they have their own little podcast app, but being on Spotify is kind of cool. Unfortunately though, we can't really see our stats from Spotify. I'm kind of okay with the trade-off of that. I think I'm okay. I've had several friends mention that if we were on Spotify, that they would listen more regularly. So the good news is we're on there. So I'm kind of excited. Um, trade-off, of course, is, as you were saying, that we don't know how many of these people are listening. So if you want to let us know, drop us a line, doubledensitypodcast.gmail.com. Let us know that you're listening. Let us know that you're interested. Uh, you know, we, we kind of want to hear about what your experiences are. We kind of want to hear uh, what you think of the podcast. If you think that Angelo should be writing more music, would you like to hear um, a bonus episode of Angelo uh, doing nothing but show tune? covers uh that could be kind of the thing we could talk about it won't happen though but hey 
But, but yeah, I, I don't mind being on Spotify, even if we don't know how many people are listening. At least we're on yet another platform. But I feel like it's kind of like a weird digression, right? Because you can also um, pick us up on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Castro, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any that we're missing, do you think? Isn't iHeartRadio a new one that they started putting podcasts on? Are we on there? Uh, no, not yet. But we can be, uh, I guess. eventually. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, let us know what your podcast streaming preferences are. If you want to go ahead and, and uh, tweet us at double underscore density, we'd love to hear what apps you use or, you know, what if you actually do directly visit a website in order to uh, listen to a podcast. Some people that, do. Yeah, that's a total nerdy fascination of mine about how people listen to podcasts because uh, I've been listening to the medium for a long time and uh, I'm stuck in my ways of just listening on previously it was my iPod and now it's on my iPhone. But I have. I don't think I've ever really listened to a full podcast on an actual computer. And unlike Facebook or Twitter, we're not actually actively collecting your data, right? So uh, we're kind of interested in uh, learning more about you in a uh, consensual manner. Yeah, and in a more, um, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill, but a more traditional way of through emails and Twitter. That's very traditional. <laughs> the Twitter, yes. <laughs> And uh, boom goes the dynamite, of course. And let's wrap things up here for episode 51 of the Double Identity Podcast. Join us next week as we dig deep and explore the dark side of leprechaun cosplay culture. Angela, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Next week, we actually do seriously begin our series on UFO religions and cults. And uh, it's going to be fun. It's a couple of episodes. um, Or rather, I should say that it's a segment on a couple of episodes. It's not the entirety of the episode itself. Yeah, and and I think we'll go back to our uh, traditional tech then paranormal format. I was very uh, confused today in terms of how we're ending this. Are we going to the paranormal segment after this, or are we just... No, no, Angela, Angela, relax. It's it's okay. You need to put the, the book down that I gave you. You need to put the, the script away. We're okay. We're good? We're good. You know, we got it? Good. All right. Yeah, we do. Okay, great. Okay. okay, Angela, I'll see you around. See you, Brian. In a series of interviews with George, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's gonna be great for the blooper reel. I know. In a series of interviews with George, with Kate, Kat, get off. She's on the fucking laptop. <laughs>